Yes, let him foretell what will come. Do not tremble. Do not be afraid. Did I not proclaim this and foretell it long ago? You are my witnesses. Is there any God besides me? No, there is no other rock. I know not one. All who make idols are nothing, and the things they treasure are worthless. Those who would speak up for them are blind. They are ignorant to their own shame. Who shapes a god and casts an idol which can profit him nothing? He and his kind will be put to shame. Craftsmen are nothing but men. Let them all come together and take their stand. They will be brought down to terror and infamy. The blacksmith takes a tool and works with it in the coals. He shapes an idol with hammers. He forges it with the might of his arm. He gets hungry and loses his strength. He drinks no water and grows faint. The carpenter measures with a line and makes an outline with a marker. He roughs it out with chisels and marks it with compasses. He shapes it in the form of man, of man in all his glory, that it may dwell in a shrine. He cuts down cedars, or perhaps took a cypress or oak. He let it grow among the trees of the forest, or planted a pine, and the rain made it grow. It is man's fuel for burning. Some of it he takes and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread, but he also fashions a god and worships it. He makes an idol and bows down to it. Half of the wood he burns in the fire, over it he prepares his meal, he roasts his meat and eats his fill. He also warms himself and says, Ah, I am warm, I see the fire. From the rest he makes a god, his idol. He bows down to it and worships. He prays to it and says, Save me, you are my God. They know nothing. They understand nothing. Their eyes are plastered over so they cannot see and their minds closed so they cannot understand. No one stops to think. No one has the knowledge or understanding to say, Half of it I used for fuel. I even baked bread over its coals. I roasted meat and ate. Shall I make a detestable thing from what is left? Shall I bow down to a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. A deluded heart misleads him. He cannot save himself or say, is it not this thing in my right hand a lie? Amen. So here we are back in Isaiah. Now, um, <clears throat> we can't uh, look at the whole of Isaiah chapters 40 to 55 but uh, these 15, 16 chapters are famous for their magnificent, majestic uh, doctrine of God, the, the, the ways, the character of God. So if you want to discover something of how great and awesome God is, this is a key part of Isaiah to do so. So really in chapters 40 to 55, we are studying theology, Theology, you know that kind of scary word, theology. But that, that the, the, the character and ways of God. But who said theology can't be fun? And surely there's a place for humour in theology. And indeed, I, I believe I can, on the basis of the authority of the Bible, say that there is a definite place for humour 
in uh, theology, in our consideration of God. Now, theology, of course, is serious business, but sometimes a dash of humour only adds to the gravity of a subject. And uh, I trust that's what we'll discover here in these passages of Isaiah, what, what we could call consecrated humour. So humour has its place. And we've already discovered something of the humour of uh, Isaiah the prophet, and we're going to see more of that now. And uh, particularly, his humour is directed against idolatry. In other words, inadequate views of the character and ways of God. And we're going to look at three passages. We read one of them, but we're actually going to start in chapter 40 and verses 19 and 20. We're going to go to, with uh, Isaiah to, to a workshop where idols are made. We're going to see the strange things that happen in the factory where idols are coming off the process line. And uh, the, uh, Isaiah the prophet uses humour in the service of God. Now, now, no doubt it's true that to explain a joke is to spoil it, but I hope I'm not going to do that. But I, I want us to observe here that the humour that uh, uh, Isaiah is making use of here, that the humorous things that happen when people start to make idols. So verses 19 and 20, I'll read it in my version, you follow in your Bible. Uh, we'll, we'll do verse 18 first. Uh, to whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? An idol, a workman casts it, a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts for it silver chains. He who is impoverished chooses for an offering wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skilled craftsman to set up an image that will not move. So here we're given a little bit of insight. We're looking through the window of a workshop where idols are being made. And uh, the prophet Isaiah doesn't <coughs> uh, voice any criticism. There's, there's no commentary here. He doesn't openly mock what's happening, but he just tells us what is happening, and it is highly amusing. The description itself is enough to condemn what's happening in this workshop-making idols. Uh, verse 19, it must be one of those top-of-the-line idols, because it, it involves gold uh, and silver. It's got silver chains, no doubt decorative in function, but there's the kind of thing, uh, why does an idol need chains? It's not going anywhere. Um, he's mocking. He's just pointing out various features that when we think about it, uh, indeed is highly amusing. Verse, verse uh, 20 might be the cheaper version, you know, the $2 shop version of making idols because all it consists of is wood. But uh, the wood is carefully chosen, wood that will not rot. After, after all, you would not want the God that you worship to rot away. Again, he's taking the mickey out of those who make idols. And again, it's got to be set up carefully, you know, don't forget centre of gravity, don't let the top be more heavy than the bottom because you wouldn't want the idol, the image you worship, to topple over. 
So it, it's, it's mockery uh, by, by Isaiah here. Uh, what an idol is in comparison to the wonder of who God is. Verse 17, where the, uh, the nations are nothing before him. In comparison with God, they are nothing and emptiness. Verse 17, and there's no one that can be likened or compared or is God's equal. That's verse 18, uh, certainly not an idol. The two things could not be more different. The living God of the Bible and an idol, why the very comparison is is laughable. And so what we have here describing the idol worship, uh, idol workshop indeed is mockery. Now it's not nice to laugh at the beliefs and convictions of others, is it? But sometimes they deserve it. And the Bible is not always nice. Uh, Indeed, Jesus was not always nice. He wasn't being nice, was he, when he criticised the teachers of the law and the Pharisees. You strain a gnat and swallow a camel. A bit like, you know, the old joke, waiter, there's a, a fly in my soup. But, you know, I mean, you kind of haven't noticed there's also a camel kind of swimming around the soup. You know, I mean, uh, Jesus mocking the religious teachers of the day who were nitpickers but ignored what was really important in religion. Straining out gnats and swallowing camels. Jesus wasn't being nice, was he, when he described the Pharisees at whitewashed tombs, beautiful on the outside, rotten, smelly, horrible, unclean on the inside. Jesus using humour to make a point. The Apostle Paul, who uses irony and sarcasm, sarcasm, that lowest form of wit, but used so often in the Bible, when he's writing to the Corinthians, trying to take them down a peg or two. Would to God that you were kings, as they seem to think they are. Would that you were kings, that we might reign with you. The Corinthians, who think that they've arrived and don't realise that the kingdom of God has not yet dawned in all its fullness, would that you were kings, biting sarcasm from the Apostle Paul. So here's the uh, prophet Isaiah also using humour. So indeed, uh, Jesus, the Apostle Paul, they're just taking a leaf out of the books of the prophets. The prophets used humour before them. And so why should we not do that? Uh, The world mocks Christianity. Uh, It makes fun of the things that we hold dear. So why should we not use this same weapon in defence and even counter-attack? And that's what Isaiah is doing here. Though before we laugh too much, remember that Isaiah the prophet here is not writing to Babylonians or any other kind of idol makers, remember what he's writing here is written to the people of God. It's written for believers. They believe in God, but are they, are we, only too prone to fall into different forms of idolatry ourselves, confusing God with an idol? It's not a, is it not a danger for any one of us to slip into idolatrous ways of thinking? 
Now it could well be that if we are laughing here at these idol makers, we could well find that we're laughing at ourselves. Yes, laughter is the best medicine, isn't it? Isn't it? A kind of, uh, you know, sometimes you know, a good belly laugh does us a great deal of good, as long as we're not recovering from a hernia operation, of course. So just, just be careful. There's a health warning that's going along with this sermon, right? But uh, no, sometimes laughter is the best medicine. Have a good laugh. We discover we're laughing at ourselves, how, how foolish we are. We catch ourselves out. Uh, the very things we're laughing at others, we're laughing at others and we suddenly find that, that we're looking in the mirror. And we ourselves have been playing the fool. So here we are, in the, uh, looking in the window at this factory making idols. Could it be that we're laughing at ourselves? How might we turn the true and living God into something he's not, into an idol? Well, of course, there's many ways to do that. Human ingenuity. Uh, one way, of course, is by being too one-sided in our idea of God. We don't have the balance of the word of God. We're, we're lopsided. we we uh, off-center in our view of God. We're making an idol, aren't we, if we say that God is only loving. But isn't there that verse, God is love? But there's also that other verse in the first letter of John which says God is light, a way of speaking of the awesome holiness of God. Do we have the balance of scripture? So there is the danger, isn't it, of turning our heavenly father into our heavenly grandfather, who's indulgent and whatever we do, we get a pat on the head and we get presents at Christmas time. That's right, turning God into Santa, who only indulges and spoils and never disciplines and never expects the best of us and would never ask anything difficult of us. If we turn God into Santa, then we're creating an idol. You, you know the old joke about the three stages of life, don't you? The first stage, you believe in Santa. The second stage, you don't believe in Santa. The third stage, you are Santa. That's right, so. That's right, the three stages of life. But, but if we turn God into Santa, you see, our heavenly father into our heavenly grandfather, that then we've created an idol, we're worshipping an idol. Of course, we can go in the other direction too. Be overbalanced in the other way and have a view of God and he's nothing but a stern judge. A sergeant major God who on the parade ground all he does is bark out orders and we jump and we live in constant fear and terror of him. A God who is no fun to be with and only issues orders and the Christian life becomes something oppressive and we've created an idol in the fashion of maybe our over harsh earthly father and we're flogging ourselves, and we're awfully hard on ourselves, and we think that it's God who is driving us to that. 
No, maybe because of inherited tendencies and family upbringing or poor teacher, but poor teaching, but we're creating an idol. Well, we certainly live in a cafeteria culture, don't we? Uh, even breakfast here at Camp Elam, you know, you can take what you like and leave what you don't. And people can do that with God. Uh, treating the Bible as some kind of smorgasbord. Take this, leave that behind. We can make a God in our own image, which is often what we're doing. A, a, a God who suits. A, a God who fits in. A God who uh, is according to our own prejudices and our likes and dislikes. But what we're doing then is creating an idol. Another way we might make an idol of God is that we turn him into what some person has called the celestial bellhop. You know, the, you know, the, the, the guy in the, the foyer of the hotel. Ring the bell. The bellhop is there by your side, takes, takes your luggage and does whatever you want him to do. We can create a God like that, can't we? Where our job is to pray and God's job is to answer our prayers. And the Christian faith becomes manipulation. Or else we can go to the opposite extreme with our awfully correct theology and we're worried about the extremes that other people go to and we, have, we create God as, as a powerless idol and we expect nothing of him. We don't really expect he's going to answer our prayers in any kind of dramatic way or intervene in our lives or in the world. Only too easy for us to be guilty of the very things that we see in others and we laugh at them. So laughing at idol makers, we may find that we're laughing at ourselves. So that's chapter 40, verses 19 and 20. Then we're back in the factory that makes idols in chapter 41, verses 6 and 7. So turn over the page with me there. Another description of what's happening. We're looking through the windows. So 41 verse 6. Everyone helps his neighbour and says to his brother, take courage. The craftsman encourages the goldsmith. And he who smooths with the hammer, him who strikes the anvil. Saying of the soldering, it is good. And they fashion it with nails so that it cannot be moved. So here we have these same two workmen. There's the craftsman who's working with wood and there's the goldsmith, um, the blacksmith who's working with, with metal, with gold and silver. They're both there working away, uh, helping and encouraging each other in this great task of making an idol. Again, it's mockery. And all their hard work, well, it's hardly worth the effort. Just in case uh, you want to know how to make an idol, and you can, you can find it on the internet anyway, but um, what's described here, there's a wooden core, a piece of wood which has been shaped in some kind of human form by the craftsman, and then the blacksmith has hammered out gold or silver in, in flat, thin metal sheets, and then it's encased in uh, metal. So that's how to make a U-boot idol, as described here. So they're, they're working hard, 
but it's much ado about nothing. Two fusspots, it's their labour of love. They, they love their work. They work hard at it. Uh, it's sweating work. It's dirty work. They spur each other on. They encourage each other. Be strong. It is good. But it's a whole lot of fuss and bother about nothing because all they're creating is an idol. Oh, yes, and don't forget to nail it down in case it falls over. Uh, so, so, again, uh, he's, he's, he's mocking. He's describing what's happening. Their great enthusiasm, but the whole thing is quite useless and foolish. But again, at laughing with others, we may well discover that we're laughing at ourselves. We're, we're looking through the window into a workshop, but what we're really looking at is the sinful human heart where idols are made. John Calvin, you know, the human heart is a factory of idols. Sinful human beings, our tendency is to make an idol and to worship it. It's the danger that we're all in and we're always in of worshipping a God who is too small. J.B. Phillips' famous little book, Your God is Too Small. Everybody knows the title of the book. People haven't probably read it, but it's a great title, isn't it? Your God is too small. Too small, smaller than the true and living God who is presented to us in the pages of Holy Scripture. We make an idol of God when we underestimate his love and mercy. We make an idol of him when we don't take seriousness, seriously his justice and his holiness. We, we fashion a God who serves our purposes where in fact the true and living God is the one that, whose purposes we are created to serve. We change him, we adjust him, we tinker with him this way and that. We finally get a God who suits us. But we're just like these two characters here, the craftsman and the goldsmith. We're making an idol of himself. A, a, a bit like cooking, isn't it? Take out the PW, PWA cookbook, a measure of this, a pinch of that, stick it all in the oven out comes a God. It's only too easy for us, isn't it, to fashion a God to our liking rather than the true and living God. It, it sometimes means that we've got to smash our cherished ideas, the ideas that we were, <coughs> the ideas that we were brought up with, the re religious influences of our younger days or just our own predilections, personality, and uh, preferences. Smashing idols and taking seriously what the Bible says about who and what God really is. Laughing at others, we might find we're laughing at ourselves. And then we can jump over to the larger passage that uh, was read for us, chapter 44, and really verses 9 and following, the previous paragraph, yes, verses 6 to 8, this magnificent portrait of who God is. He's the first and the last, and beside me there is no God. 
the God who predicts the future and brings it about. So, so Isaiah can speak and argue for the, for the character of God using a profound theological argument. Who is the true living God? He's the one who predicts the future because he shapes the future and no other God can do that. So we have a kind of a, a serious, highbrow uh, argument for God in verses 6 to 8. But yes, humour, the low, you know, sarcasm, the lowest form of wit. We also have this lowbrow kind of argument. The prophets are not uh, averse to using humour in the service of true theology. So that's what we have in verses 9 to 20. And, and, and again, no doubt we're meant to enjoy passages like this. Uh, but as we laugh, we may find that we're laughing at ourselves and not just others. The faults of others are obvious, aren't they? But our own faults are harder to see. And that's, is that why the Bible does sometimes use humour? We, we catch ourselves out. We're highly amused. And then we think, but I've done this myself. Well, what's wrong with idolatry? It leads to shame. It leads to shame. That's the words that's used in my version, verse 9. That they may be put to shame. It leads to shame. Uh, when the Bible talks about shame, it really means disappointment. If we, if we believe in an idol, if we worship an idol... Uh, it will lead to disappointment and failure. It will let us down when it really matters. Remember in Romans chapter 1 when the Apostle Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel? You know how people often say, oh, and even the Apostle Paul was tempted sometimes to be a bit embarrassed by the gospel. That's not what it means. He's not ashamed of the gospel. What he's saying is that the gospel will not let me down. It's the power of God for salvation. It will infallibly save no one who's ever put their faith in the gospel has been disappointed. Yeah, to be shamed is to be disappointed, to be failed, to be let down badly when it really matters. And that's, that's the problem with idolatry because we're putting our faith in false gods, a god of our own making, a god who doesn't exist. A God who won't be there when we need him in a crisis. A God who won't be there in the day of judgment to justify us because of our faith in Jesus. Idolatry leads to disappointment and disaster. Verse 20 at the end of the passage. He feeds on ashes. A deluded mind has led him astray. He cannot deliver himself or say, there is a lie in my right hand. See, idolatry, it's a lie that will be exposed and will fail and will disappoint. <clears throat> but again, here, so in this passage, Isaiah using humour in the service of theology. And again, the mere description of what goes on in making an idol is to show how foolish it is. Verse 12, an ironsmith fashions it, works over the coals, he shapes it with the hammer, he forges it with a strong arm, he becomes hungry, his strength fails, he drinks no water, he is faint. All, all the hard work, it's thirsty work, it's, it's hungry work, but he skips lunch, he works through lunch, he's so engrossed and committed to this useless, foolish activity of making an idol 
all his dedication, all his hard work, and yet it's totally misdirected. Isaiah here is mocking what happens when idols are made. Verse 13 describes the work of the carpenter and all the different instruments and things which are required. You know, the pencil, the plane, the compass. He, you know, he's got, he's got his, you know, U-Butte workshop. He's got all these tools and, you know, he's using everything. But he's making an idol that's just going to be put into a shrine, into a house, rather than the true and living God who lives in heaven, you see. That's the implied contrast in verse 13. And then verse 14 is very clever too. Because uh, what it does is, it, it notice it's it describes the whole thing backwards. It's a bit like the old, you know, church camps, you know, where you had kind of like a, a drama night or, you know, kind of night, you know, and different people do skits. It's like the old church camp skit where everything is kind of done backwards, you know what I mean? Kind of, it's that kind of classic humour type thing. So verse 14 you know, he's cutting down a tree, the beginning of verse 14, but in the end of verse 14, he's planting it and so forth. So it describes the whole thing backwards, again, as a way of, of mocking all, all this effort to grow the right tree, the right species, the right kind of wood, but it's all being used for this useless purpose of making an idol. Idolatry here is being mocked. And then in verses 15 to 17, maybe it's the most famous part of the passage, you know, from the one piece of wood, he chops it in two. Half of it he uses to cook his dinner with. The other half of the same block of wood he makes into an idol and he bows down and worships it and thinks that it can deliver him. You know, kind of, what's going on? Uh, and the... Uh, Idolatra condemns himself in his own words. He's quoted in verse 19. He, look what he says. Half of it I burned in the fire. I also baked bread on its coals. I roasted flesh and have eaten. And shall I make the residue, you know, the other half, into an abomination, a lie, words which the Bible uses for an idol. You know, he condemns himself with his own words. Yes, idolatry, it's a joke. It's a, it's a tragedy. A, a home brand God cannot save or help. The idolater is trusting something of his own making and it cannot deliver and save him. As I said, we're using humour here for a serious purpose because it, it matters what we believe in isn't it do we know and serve the true and living God finally perfectly made known to us revealed in Jesus Christ do we truly believe and follow the God of the Bible or do we f prefer an idol of our own making human beings have wonderful imagination we have we're, we're so inventive um, ingenious really in the things that we can devise and, and we can use all those things to make a God who sits, uh, who suits a, a God who fits in with what we are like, a God who is only a reflection of ourselves 
or only a little bit bigger than ourselves. Whereas the God and Father of Jesus Christ is entirely different from us, totally loving, totally just, all wise, all good, nothing at all like an idol. The true and living God, yes, he sometimes asks us to do things which are downright inconvenient, indicating, reminding us that he's, he's not an idol. He hasn't been fashioned in our image. Uh, the true and living God, he doesn't always play the game the way we want him to. You see, he has a mind of his own because he's not an idol. He's, just not, he's not a reflection of our own likes and dislikes and prejudices. He has a mind of his own. Of course, he is also wonderfully and sweetly reasonable, but we cannot dictate to him. He loves us dearly, but the working out of that love, he often does things in our lives for our good, but because he often knows better than we do what is truly for our good, he brings us through circumstances that we would never have choose, chosen for ourselves, but it only indicates that he is not an idol. See, the God of the Bible, he really is quite frustrating at times because you just can't talk him round. He insists on having his own way. You know, often with other people, you can manipulate them. But you can't do that with the true and living God because he is no idol. And thank goodness that he is not. So here's, a, here's a Isaiah the prophet, this great doctrine of God. We've only looked at one aspect or the, the contrasting aspect that the God that uh, Isaiah talks about, 40 to 55, is nothing at all like the idols that human beings are only too ready to create for themselves. Let's have a word of prayer. Yes, Father, in laughing at others, and indeed we quite enjoy laughing at the follies of others, but then, Lord, we discover that we're not all that different ourselves. And there's the ever-present danger that we try to turn you into an idol, Someone who is better suits our own ideas and prejudices. Forgive us, Father, for this. Lord, help us to be true students of the scriptures and, and to have our view of you constantly refreshed and corrected by what we find in Holy Scripture. Thank you for that perfect reflection of yourself in, in your divine Son, Jesus Christ. We only have to look at Jesus to see what you're truly like. Unbelievably loving. Frighteningly holy. But the only one who is worth believing in and following. And so thank you for who you truly are. And help us to be faithful servants of you, the true and living God. And we pray this through Jesus. Amen.